Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole and Happy New Year. I'm William and my co-host today is Kate Kearns. Hi, Kate. Hi, William. We are bringing you a very special episode at the beginning of 2020 because we have a maybe the most special guest that we've ever had on the podcast. The one, the only, Sarah Weaver is back with us today. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? Happy New Year. Good. I'm excited to be back in the closet with you guys. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who don't know, we often record in our closets. We can take that part out of you. Nah. We often record in our closets because it helps with the sound and that's what we do. So that's our joke for today. Sarah is here to reflect, to share to talk about how she left us abandoned and without her. No, no, no. But if you've been listening, you'll recall that Sarah completed one of her big goals last year and graduated from her graduate counseling program. Congrats again, by the way. And got a job using that degree and is still doing that and still bringing prevention into that space as well. So that's what we're here to talk about, how you can bring prevention into other places and spaces. If at any point you feel uncomfortable, um, we're not anticipating any big trigger warnings, but if you feel uncomfortable, like you need to take a break from this episode, please do so and join us back whenever you're ready. So per the usual, we will start with an icebreaker because we know Sarah Weaver that you love an icebreaker. And uh, one of the things that we've been talking about recently is recently, like we haven't been talking about it all year, TikTok. And Kate, you were saying earlier that you found yourself on BookTok. And I was sharing that I got some books for Christmas and also immediately went to Barnes & Noble to buy eight more books. So I have 12 new books to read in this new year, not to mention all the other books that I own already that I'm well-intentioned and wanting to read. This made me think about our iceberg for today, which is in 2021, what was the best book that you read and why? Who wants to go first? I have a question real quick. What is book talk? Well, it's TikTok, but they talk about books. Is it like a whole different app or is it like you find yourself on the side of book talk? Uh, Yeah, it's yeah, you're on that side of Okay. Just checking. The book reader side of TikTok, yes. And it's like some people do kind of like summaries of the books. And other people are like the lists of books, like these are the best books for this. And then sometimes they're bookstores that are like uh, what's the one that i would say i want to say this bookstore is in like portland or something i don't know that's probably wrong and they're like what is a book that you wanted to hug after you were done reading it and so then all of the like staff i don't know if i don't know i don't think it's a library so i don't think they're librarians but i mean staff at a bookstore librarians i mean i don't really know what the difference is but anyway but they go and like show you all the books that made like made you want to hug the book after it was over or made you want to like throw the book across the room when it was over, things like that. So anyway, so yes, that's book talk. But Sarah Weaver, what was the best book that you read in 2021? I think I've read more books this year than I have probably collectively in my entire life, which is strange, but I'm here for it. Um, I mean, what a great source of things for this question then. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Yes, I've done well. I read most of Brene Brown's books this year, which were 
wonderful. My favorite was The Gift of Imperfections. I highly recommend that one. It's very, I don't know. I just really liked it because it felt very like self-aware and like acceptance of yourself, even if you're not perfect. And I thought that was really beautiful. I also read The New Jim Crow which took me a very long time because it's horribly sad, but probably the most informative book that I've read this year. And then the fun one, it was either this year, could have been 2019, I don't know, but I read Red, White, and Royal Blue, and that was just a fun book. I love it. It was great. We were just talking about, uh, that's one of the books that I bought in my Barnes & Noble trip. You still haven't read it yet? Christmas. No, yeah. So, <laughs> But I have it now, so it's on the list. As ever. Sarah is an overachiever and gave us three books in three different categories that she enjoyed. Kate Kearns, would you like to share your favorite read of 2021 or top three? It might be top three. I'm a big fiction reader only because I can like really churn through a lot of fiction books. So I haven't read as many nonfiction books as I would have liked to this year. But a fiction book that I really, really liked this year that I'm like eagerly waiting to start the sequel is called The Inheritance Games. Super good kind of YA mystery type book that Book Talk turned me on to. And I devoured it in like 12 hours, I think, because it was so fun. And then the other one that I'm still in the middle of that I'm really liking is A Girl's Guide to Murder, which is kind of like a true crime meets YA kind of book that's really interesting and my fun one is I haven't read Red White and Royal I haven't read that one but I'm reading right now The Love Hypothesis which is hysterical highly recommend that one for like a light fun funny romance read okay we'll have to list all these in the episode description so that people can reference back so remember the ones that you shared (laughs) i'd say since we're going on threes here the one that i just finished was cicely tyson's memoir just as i am and i think that it was a really good really good read and like a, a picture into her journey from a really poor family like immigrant parents to the actress and supermodel that she was and the various people and things that had an impact and then why she chose to take the roles that she chose. So it was really great. And then I read this book called Unapologetic, a Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements by Charlene Carruthers. And one in the foreword, I don't know if y'all read the forewords or like the prefaces or the whatever. I don't always, full disclosure, in a lot of the books that I read, I just had this conversation with some of my other friends. And I got chastised pretty hardcore, but this is a safe space. I'm counting everyone in this moment. But this one I did read and it mentioned my hometown in the first like page. She was like, regardless of whether I, you know, am here in this place or here in this place. And one of those was Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I was like, weird. But even after that point, it's just a really great book on how to elevate like a black queer feminist perspective, particularly into movements that think they are progressive and aren't centering intentionally marginalized communities. So, and then a third one, I also read Amanda Lovelace's The Princess Saves Herself in this one. It's like the third, I guess she has a trilogy of books that are like that. And this is the third one, but it's a I don't know if it's poetry necessarily. I think you might consider it poetry or prose. But it is 
a really quick read if you read it all together, but it's hard because it's unpacking a lot of the abuse that she experienced and it gives a big disclaimer at the beginning. And But I thought it was really powerful and a great, just a great read. So those would be my three, I think. So, and who knows what 2022 will hold on the book front, but I have plenty to choose from this year. So I was going to say all of them. Apparently it's going to hold yeah. all of them. All of the books. So anyway, Sarah Weaver, now that we know a little bit about your book preferences, for people who may not know you, who are listening, who may not have gone back and listened to season one and gotten to know you throughout the whole season, tell the people who you are and what you do. And for the people who have missed you, obviously, they might want to know just like what you've been up to. Sure. I love to tell people who you are. I'm like, that's so broad. I we could do this like an interview. Tell us about yeah. yourself. Yeah, tell us a little about yourself. What, the worst interview question ever. <laughs> So I won't lie to you. In my first sessions with my clients, I typically say that and they look at me like, what kind of question is that? I'm like, I hate when people ask me this question. I don't know why that's one of my first ones. You're preparing them for their futures and jobs. Yeah, you're just perpetuating the cycle here, though, by the way. Okay, well, now I will never be able to ask that question again. Or if I do, I'll think of you guys and be like, nope, scrap it. So for those of you who don't know me, I worked at TCFE for almost three years up until pretty recently and was on the prevention team with Kate and William. And that was such a fun experience. And now, like William said, I just recently graduated with a master's in counseling. And so I took a job working as a school counselor in a juvenile justice system, which has been an experience. It's been beautiful. It's been challenging, but I love almost every bit of it. Do you want to know more, William? Sure. Do you have any new hobbies? Have like what's been going on? You got rid of your toe shoes over the past six months. I what did. Else, what else is new? <laughs> I feel like there's a backstory there. I love wearing the Vibram five finger toe shoes uh, cool. up until working with kids in a juvenile justice system because they would never focus in a group session. They'd be like, Miss, what is wrong with your shoes? So I've had to stop wearing them because they were too distracting. Do I have any new hobbies? I don't think I do, to be honest with you. <laughs> but there has been a very, so the last six-ish months, I feel like that's been like on the forefront of my life of like figuring out what hobbies do I enjoy doing when you work full-time and have kids in a pandemic and go to school full-time, you don't have time for hobbies. <laughs> so trying to rediscover that side of my life. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Well, this is a maybe an icebreaker point 2.0. I was talking to some of my friends recently and the question came up of like, what is a hobby? And so what do you consider a hobby to be? I think for me, it's anything that you enjoy doing that like brings you life. Maybe I didn't want to say enjoyment there too, but like anything you enjoy doing that you don't necessarily have to do. Okay. Kate, any amendments or reframes? I guess I would say maybe add to that, that it's something that can be just for you or just for, you know, your personal close relationships. It doesn't, it's not for other people, you know, it doesn't have to be, but can be. So I think that that was some of the conflict in the definitions of some of my friends was that like one of them was saying a hobby is something you do with other people. And I was like, I disagree. I disagree. Uh, Running is a hobby and I do that by myself all the time. My least favorite hobby. Hobby uh, torture. Now we're yeah. getting really confused. Sorry, I don't mean to. Here. I don't mean to hobby shame. No, but yeah, I think that it doesn't have to be. And the other question, my friend was like, "Oh, journaling is a hobby," 
And my other friend was like, no, journaling is not a hobby. Like journaling is self-care or journaling is whatever. I was like, but hobbies can be self-care one and two hobbies. If you're journaling because you have to journal, like you're journaling for homework. Like that's not a hobby, I guess. Right. Like, cause there's like a requirement. Yeah. Or like if you're having to keep like a food journal for your doctor or something, I'm like, that's probably not a hobby either. But like, if you're just journaling because you like want an artistic outlet and that's the outlet that you choose, then yeah, like that's, that's a hobby. Yeah. If you're running, like if I was made to do a stress test and had to run on a treadmill, that's not a hobby. It's torture. Like anyway, I had um, to do that once. It was not fun. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the detour about the hobby definition. Cause I was real curious. Can we go back to something real quick before sure. we on though? Because I think it's really interesting that your friend said that a hobby was not self. What was it? A hobby is not self care. Yeah. And we, so we had to recently do a trauma informed training at work and we had this whole self care section and we have this beautiful self care list of like different aspects of self care. And it was just really interesting because it broadened like the definition of what self care could be or look like. And so I just think it's interesting that we still have like self care and that it's not just your friend. I think we do this all the time, but like self care in a box, you know what I mean? Like it has to look or be a certain way. But on this list, it was like, if you're having a hard day, make sure you laugh with somebody. And it was just like simple like that. And I was like, huh, you know, we used to do that with you guys all the time. We would turn our chairs around and we just have a little laugh about something. But it was like, it was just an interesting perspective of like self-care can be so much more. Anyways, sorry, self-care rant. Yeah, no. And it's also like for hobbies too, like they can be mutually together, but they can also be separate. Yeah. Like reading is a hobby. You don't do that with other people. I mean, I guess you could, but speaking of books anyway no but i think talking about self-care is actually a good segue into counseling prevention all i mean self-care is important in both of those realms um and so the big question of the day sarah is how have you brought prevention and all the things that you learned in the realm of violence prevention forward with you into your new counseling space That's a big question. I feel like, I guess like some disclaimers before I get into that conversation is like, I did just recently graduate. And so I've been working with clients for like two years, a year and a half. I don't know. So it hasn't been that long. I'm a baby counselor is my point. And so when we go into this conversation, like, yes, I've learned new things, but I still have so many things to learn, if that makes sense. Also, I obviously can't talk about clients, some of the themes that have like popped up with working with this population, I am will incorporate a little bit, but like, just fair warning, I can't like give more details on that. Anyways, I was actually thinking about this question. One day with one of my clients, working with clients is especially young people has been a very enlightening experience. They will call you out on anything, which is hilarious, but like self-care there, you know. But when we think about like violence prevention and all the things that I've learned with you guys and like working in schools with sexual assault prevention, I still do a ton of that because a lot of these kids see what's going on and things that we were trying to prevent, right? Or trying to teach other people how to prevent. They see the sexual assault. They see the domestic violence. They're experiencing all of that. And they also just want to learn more and change things and they advocate in their own ways. And so having 
been in prevention for five-ish years before moving into counseling has been really helpful in that like I still get to do that. I work with these clients and I'm like, this is what sexual assault or domestic violence prevention is. And like, how does that look in your life? And we go over a lot of those things. And so they are very willing to learn and have those conversations. And that's been really helpful. And then there's a lot of really hard conversations around race and racism too. And I think that had I not worked with you all at TCFE so in-depthly on what anti-oppression work looks like and like what that looks like for me as a white person, it's been incredibly helpful because I don't think I could have been that safe of a space for somebody if I was so oblivious and unaware. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that there's so many different skills and like facilitation skills, right? Like being able to navigate challenging conversations that parallel in the prevention work that we do. But also when I talk to my counselor, therapist friends, I think advocates, therapists and counselors all run in the same like vein, like their jobs are very different or can be very different. But there's a lot of overlap and like similarities. And when it comes to like active listening and when it comes to um, empowerment based models, like like letting someone else share about their experiences, their traumas and trying to figure out essentially a safety plan. Right? Like with advocates, we often focus on safety plans, but counselors focus on safety plans maybe in a different way and sometimes pretty similar ways. So there's the skills, but then there's there's also the, the overlap in the topics, right? Where it's like empowering someone with their own like self view, like their their own worthiness, and being able to talk to people about like the rights that they have in a relationship. Um, we often focus on stuff like that in a when it comes to teen dating violence or a romantic relationship, but those are the same things that permeate through other types of relationships, not just romantic ones. Right. And so I think being able to do that is important and I can see where those overlap. I do have y'all's toolkits, like things from the TCFE toolkit posted up around through my office. And, uh, you know, it's very nice. Cause like, again, I guess it's just tying it in, but like, that's so many of my conversations with these young people center around like the healthy relationship wheel or power and control wheel and the bill of rights, like you were saying. And it's very, it's incredibly helpful to have those in my office. So like, shout out to you guys. We could send you some of those materials if you need, because they're still all in the office. Yes, please. Because mine are just crumbly paper at this point. <laughs> yeah. And also shout out to you. Like you helped us make those. Like, yeah. What are you talking about? Don't discount yeah, I mean, I efforts, definitely, Sarah. Uh-huh. Actively remember brainstorming the bill of rights as a group together. So. So, Sarah, other than leaving us, right, because that was clearly a challenge for everyone involved, what have been some of the challenges? What might be some of the, from moving from a prevention world into a counseling job at a juvenile justice center, what are some of the challenges that you have faced that you feel comfortable talking about? I was like, oh, I don't know that I can talk about the biggest challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges, to be honest, was moving from like a, how would you sum up TCFE, like a feminist organization? Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. An organization that focuses on empowering people. (laughs) This sounds so bad, but like, okay, I don't really know how to like sum it up. So maybe we can just brainstorm it together. But moving from TCFE to juvenile system has been incredibly challenging. 
because it's, it's, you know, it sounds like what you're describing is like you went from a nonprofit type organization to like more of like a not-for-profit organization that's more based in like government. So it's like more bureaucratic maybe. Yes. And I would say that like, yes, in the realm of domestic violence prevention, we at least try to be empowerment based and you're moving into a punitive based system. Yes. Um, Even though you are not part of the punitive based solution. Right. But like the system around you is a, is a punishment based system. Yes. That was a well formed thought. (laughs) Thanks William. And I will say like the place I'm working is really trying to change that and like be more of an empowerment place but it's hard when it's been set up to be punitive, you know, and like there's obviously going to be challenge there and it's not going to be perfect. So like it's good and it's still hard. So I think like that's been one challenge that I've had. And then another one is like with prevention, a lot of it is I really struggled when I first started with prevention of like, how do you have these hard conversations in a light, engaging way? And so like people would always say prevention, people just have fun. And like we did have a lot of fun. And I still do as a counselor, but like sitting in a group, throwing a beach ball around and like having these conversations with a large group of kids and like engaging them in a fun way is a lot different than sitting in a room one-on-one, hearing people's stories is so in-depthly. And like talking about self-care, like I've had to really reevaluate what self-care means for me as a counselor because these people go through things I could have never even dreamed of. And so learning like what my boundary is and how do I hold space for their stories while acknowledging their pain, but like also trying to empower them to live their best lives. You know what I mean? And like, it's just very, there was one day I had a really hard session and I cried, you guys. I cried for like the first time in like six months, there was three little tears, but you know, I took this kid back to the other kids And I was just standing in the gym looking at all these kids and I was, it was just like, I could like look at someone and be like, there's this trauma and this trauma and this trauma. And it just got really overwhelming and I had to like leave for a few minutes. And so I guess like navigating that and again, just evaluating what self-care looks like in that moment has been a struggle too. Because it sounds like you're describing like this change between like having I'm going to get these wrong. I know I am like a macro lens versus like a micro lens. Like you're being in it now. Like, and that's a big shift for, for anyone. Yeah. And I love it. I always knew I wanted to work more micro and less macro, but it's still hard. Yeah. I think moving back into something that is closer to direct service would definitely bring those emotional challenges Yeah, I think that that's something that I would that I would struggle with a lot. Like I remember uh, working with young people in shelter and how hard that is. And to think that like those young people are much more likely to have been involved with a juvenile justice system and that people who are in the juvenile justice system are in a different type of system that then tracks them in a way and like their decisions have different levels of consequences um, when you're a part of the juvenile justice system um, as opposed to like the domestic violence system. And so I think that it would be incredibly difficult, but all of those young people are so lucky to have you as a counselor because you can bring all of this perspective and care for them and to help them 
reframe some of those things about self-care, about trauma, about their like outlook on life and circumstance. So I think it's probably great that you're there. That is one of my favorite, maybe not that specifically, but like reminded me of my favorite part of being a counselor is there's been so many times that these kids have been in my room. And I don't know, we have like a really good conversation about something and then they just stop and either stare at me or refuse to look at me and look at a wall. But they're like, I've never told anybody any of this. And like that moment is so beautiful because it's like creating a little safe space for you. You know, I don't know. That's one of my favorite moments of being a counselor so far is when they can finally find a safe space for some of the stuff. Yeah. And I think that that is another one of those parallels with being an advocate, right? Is like, that's what advocates should be striving to do with the survivors that are in front of them or the the children that are in front of them is to help create that safe space for someone to share their story, for someone to process their trauma, for someone to plan for the future and really start on a path of healing. And I think that those skills are very similar and transferable. Um, And I think that when it comes to counseling, you have maybe a different toolbox that goes maybe a little bit deeper into the the healing part of that journey, right? And I think that it's important to be able to try different things. So often, we want to prescribe a particular solution to say like, this is what's going to work, right? You need to try to do this thing, like like journaling, right? You, journaling will make you, it'll help you figure it out. Um, and someone tries journaling and they hate it. And then they're like, well, forget this journey altogether. Um, it's like being able to reach to help a young person, particularly one who is involved in the system, build out their toolbox so that they can reach for different things, even when they're actively facing a system that can be oppressive. I appreciate that is one thing that I've learned too, or learned pretty quickly in my internship is that like, I still refer to coping skills as coping skills, but most of the time kids will roll their eyes and they'll be like, Oh my gosh, I'm not doing any stupid breathing techniques. And you know, I guess like having the lighthearted conversations helped here too. Cause I would laugh and I'd be like, okay, well like screw the coping skills, but like, let's figure out like different things for you. And I, I guess to your point, William, like it's so important to see people as different people because like if you keep trying one thing over and over again then you know when they they tune it out you know and that's why i have so many kids who are like i'm not going to do these breathing techniques those are garbage coping skills are stupid because people haven't fully processed with them right like that not the same breathing technique is going to help with everybody and so i think that's been really helpful of just seeing people as people and like no one person is the same It's also hard when people are like, oh, you are involved in the system that is very punitive, but how about you just breathe through it, right? Like, it's it's like, let's try this coping skill to match with these larger systemic problems, whether it's racism, whether it's homophobia, whether it's abuse, and to think that, like, you frame it in a way that's like, oh, well, you just need some self-care techniques to really just, like, help you through it. And we've talked about that before, I think, maybe on a different episode or maybe just interpersonally about how people are like, oh, self-care is just like bubble baths and candles. And it's like, that's not a helpful approach, particularly when someone is facing large systemic oppressions in their life. And you're like, well, breathe in for four, hold it for four, breathe out for four or like whatever. Right. And it's like, 
that is helpful in some circumstances, but in the larger context, we have to be able to help people not I mean, I think young people even more specifically because they experience oppressions differently. One, they they have a layer of adultism put onto their oppression where that's like all of the adults in their lives, including often, I'm sure, their counselors that are like, well, you have to do it this way and you have to listen to me because I'm the adult, right? They don't say it like that necessarily, but probably sometimes. And and so then there is like a natural tendency to be like, no, I'm not going to do that just because you told me to. So... Maybe that's a question for you is like, how do you check your own privilege, the adult privilege, age privilege, like whatever you want to call it, education privilege, maybe even professional privilege. I don't know. So many privileges. How do you check those when you're going into those spaces with young people? That's a hard one to answer because it's like a consistent thing that you have to do differently again, depending on the privilege. Right. And so like, I'm so grateful. One of my professors she was, gosh, I think she was my practicum professor. And she was very much like, you call out your race if you have like a person of color sitting across from you. And like, as a white person who was not used to being like, so I'm white, how do you feel about it? It felt very strange. And I was like, what do you do? Like, how do you acknowledge that privilege in a healthy way? And I think that whole semester with her was incredibly helpful on at least that aspect of, well, I would say a lot of different ones. Cause now I sit and this, I had one client, it was so funny. I was like, you know, I was sitting in the chair and I have to do like follow-ups with some of the clients if they score these certain scores anyway. So that's a whole thing, but like I have to do follow-ups with clients. And so I sat here and I was like, towards the end of the questionnaire, it's like more about their trauma. And I'm like, okay, we're going to get to this in a minute. Like, but I'm just like a stranger in a chair. And they got really hesitant to like answer some of the questions. And I was like, it must be really weird. And they looked at me and I was like, to have this like weird adult white girl stranger sitting in a chair asking about your trauma. And she just busted out laughing. And she was like, yeah, no, it's weird. (laughs) And so like some, again, I guess going back to like learning how to have hard conversations in a light way. That's what I do with most of my clients is, and I'm not sure it's the right way for everybody, but for the majority of the time, it seems to work pretty well of like just acknowledging it. I had one client that I was talking about like college with, and I was like, I acknowledge I'm sitting in here. Nope, that wasn't it. Anyways, there was one client that like, I had to acknowledge all these different privileges. I don't remember what they were talking about, but I was like, I see that I am like a white woman who has two degrees sitting in a chair with a professional job. And like, I can't relate necessarily to what you're going through, but I can still have empathy for what you're going through and had to acknowledge that I come from a very different world, which I come from a very different world from all of my clients. And so I guess to answer your question, there is a lot of just bringing it in the room and having a conversation about it. And then making sure that I meet with like my supervisor's, to make sure that I'm not utilizing my privilege. Because if I'm talking about, you know, one of my clients and working through that with my supervisors, they'll call it out and say, like, you have to realize you come from a very different world or you have this privilege. And so they've been really helpful on that aspect as well. Um, But it's kind of one of those things you consistently have to be looking at and working through. Yeah. So I think that checking your privilege is one of those things that we've talked about before. Another thing that we've talked about before is 
being able to bridge the gap that it seems to be somewhat of an artificial gap between prevention and intervention and how like intervention services and prevention services are funded differently. They are often treated very separately and you kind of develop this mentality that they're very, they're two very different worlds when often preventionists are doing intervention when they go into a classroom or into a space and they're giving a, a presentation or they're tabling at a health fair or whatever and they encounter someone who has an outcry or a disclosure and then they have to go into safety planning mode and be a crisis advocate in that moment every person ever who is doing intervention services whether they are working a hotline whether they are a case manager or a counselor or whatever like they are doing prevention work um, it may not be primary prevention, but they are doing prevention work so that that violence that someone experienced doesn't occur again or continue to occur, I guess. And I think that like, you know, based on like what you've been talking about, like you're like actively experiencing that gap, right? Where it's like you're doing intervention work because you're directly working with young people and you're having to do prevention work at the same time. And you just might be more hyper aware of that, of working in that that space than other people yeah i think it's that's been like one thing i've no i don't know i guess when i when i was only doing prevention that gap didn't necessarily make sense to me but like now having moved into this role it really doesn't make sense because to your point like there's so many different levels of prevention like i have to work with case managers or probation officers and like provide some of that prevention education training to them as well and then working with the kids and then, you know, there's just so many different aspects to it that is the prevention work I was doing, whether that was at the local shelter or with TCFE. And so, like, both roles are consistently being done. You know, you said, like, it may not be primary prevention. And I think one thing I've really has proven to be more true in this role is, like, primary prevention is a really nice idea. But, like, unless you're working with babies, you know what I mean? Like, it's just going to be hard because... Like I said, some of these kids, and I've only worked with a handful of kids in my year, year and a half, but they've experienced more than I could ever have imagined to be a possibility for someone to experience. And like some of them are 11 or 12 or 14. And, you know, that's our age range that we typically try to work primary prevention with. But like they've already, it's not primary anymore. When I used to work for the, uh, I was an advocate for a period of time and I started at the National Teen Dating Abuse Helpline and which is a sister project of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And in our building, the teen hotline was downstairs and the other hotline was upstairs. And we used to talk about a lot about we wanted to help people downstairs so that they didn't ever get to upstairs. They didn't ever have to make that call. And like, I didn't know until I started working at TCFE that that's prevention work. Like we never framed it in like our trainings or our ongoing like learnings as prevention work, but like we had a very prevention like centered lens about it that I think kind of was organic when we were working with young people. And I find it really interesting that like it's it was very natural for me to like bridge those things together in when I got into this field and then learned later how separate they tend to be was very kind of disorienting because it, it felt so natural. So it's, I'm glad that you're taking, you have those skills to take to your kids that you see, Sarah. And I wish 
all the other baby counselors could do it too. Yeah. And even people who don't work with young people, right? People often solely associate prevention with working with youth. And it's like, no, like even when you're working with adult clients, you are still doing prevention work because you still want their violent relationship or whatever their trauma is. Even if you're not in the, in the domestic violence or sexual violence realm, like you want whatever their trauma is to come to an end, right? You want them to be able to not experience it again. You want them to be able to heal from it, right? All of that is prevention, regardless of the age of the person that you're working with or what the type of trauma is um, that they're experiencing. You don't want it to happen again. You don't want it to continue to happen, right? Like all of those things. And so I think that for people, counselors, advocates, therapists, healthcare professionals, teachers, like in any role where you're working with other people, you can really benefit from reducing that gap that we have in society of intervention is separate from prevention. And knowing that all of those other intersectional pieces help to reduce that gap as well, like when it comes to education, when it comes to access to resources, and other forms of social support, financial assistance, all of those things help like our preventative measures um, and are often direct, considered direct service as well. So Sarah, it's been so great having you back. I hope that 2022 continues to bring us joy. And I wonder if you have any hopes and dreams for folks that you'd like to share. I don't know why I forgot about this question. Hold on. <laughs> I'm like, I have so many hopes and dreams now. One, I guess going off of the conversation we just had that like prevention would become more normalized and that like it would be embedded in so many different aspects of our work. It is, but like acknowledged and embedded, if that makes sense. I think the other thing is going back to like what I said about one of my favorite parts of being a counselor and like when someone can acknowledge that they've never had a safe space before. And it's such a beautiful moment. I guess one of my biggest hopes is that everybody can have a safe space to grow and learn about themselves or with other people because it's so crucial, I think, in our journey as a human to find a safe space where we feel supported and can talk through things. Um, But we also don't necessarily promote that. So I think that's one of my biggest hopes is that we can all find a safe space to be ourselves. Yeah. Kate, do you have any hopes and dreams you'd like to leave with the people as we embark on 2022? I think it's kind of similar to a safe space. I've been thinking a lot about as the year ended, um, as we're coming up on two years of pandemic life, I've been thinking a lot about being able to kind of like center yourself back in, in you, like in you as a person and not in your job or your career or, you know, what you're hustling for. And so I think it's kind of like that safe space. Like I, I just want everybody to be able to kind of embody that and be able to focus on themselves when they need to. I think that's when pandemic has taught me anything. It's that life moves really fast. And if you don't pay attention to you, then it's going to pass you by. So like maybe to Sarah's point around safe spaces is just create the space that you need for yourself. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I'm hoping that I, like I said, 2022 has some joy ahead for us. I also want a lot of the practices, the good, I think there are a lot of good practices that came out of the pandemic when it comes to collective care. Yeah, just people finding their joy. I think that the pandemic has been hard. It's been super hard for a lot of people. And 
as we enter into a space where COVID might be becoming more endemic, I hope that people continue to carry some of that. The quest for joy, those best practice, people-centered practices to the forefront. So Sarah Weaver, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. We miss you. Miss you. I miss you guys too. So is there anything, any final words you want to say to the people? Wow. I think she doesn't like you. That's what she said. I was just thinking. No, I think I've always had a special place for prevention in my heart. Love prevention people. But like, thank you, I guess, for all the work that you do. Because there's a lot of people out there who need a lot of support. And y'all do a great job. So thank you. All right, sir. We were happy new year. Also a fun fact real quick. Most of the kids I work with also call me full Sarah Weaver. I don't really. It's funny that I went from TCFE to this new job. Something else that carried forward your prevention, knowledge and skills and the fact that you get full named. Full names. Uh, Yes. Well, Well, thanks, guys. Yeah. All right, Sarah. Until next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) There it is. Thank you. (laughs) 